All right, John, welcome back. Hey, Brian, welcome back. And welcome to folks who are listening. If you're new to Snap Decisions, this is the podcast that gives you a behind-the-scenes look at some of the big decisions that shape the way products and brands and personalities present themselves to the world. And today, we've got a real expert at that. And following up our last episode, which is all about the Super Bowl, we've got someone who knows a little something about creating Super Bowl ads, good Super Bowl ads. Before that... What do you got for me, Brian? You know, I was reading the news the last couple of days and saw a really interesting story that I wanted to get your reaction to. So uh, in San Francisco, during the celebration of the Lunar New Year recently, a Waymo car, which is a driverless Google car, was set ablaze. A bunch of warriors set the car on fire in San Francisco, in Chinatown, as they were celebrating the Lunar New Year. And the car was attacked driving through the neighborhood with a partier throwing a firework into the empty car, causing the car to go <laughs> in flames. Thankfully, no one was in the car and, and no one else was apparently injured, which is great. But brought up questions on my end here. Number one, are we seeing a growing backlash against technology? I think things are popping up all over our lives, specifically in the uh, self-driving category. A recent uh, Washington Post analysis found at least 40 serious or fatal accidents among uh, the 900 reported from Tesla in the last few years. Investment in that category is decreasing. With that, as well as all the things happening with AI and how it might replace jobs and how these things are just becoming disruptive forces in our society. People walking around with the Apple Vision Pro in the middle of the side. <laughs> uh, so John, should we expect more of this type of backlash against technology? You know, I don't know that we can specifically say that the Waymo explosion was a uh, backlash against technology. But as tech advances, will will we see human uh, backlash to the uh, advancement of technology? Hmm. I'm a little torn. First, you said a few things in there about the situation. Celebration, partiers, New Year's, fireworks. I don't know. It sounds to me like not too dissimilar from certain, I don't know, celebratory crowds post-football game, you know, there for celebration, ends up in mayhem. I think that's more likely the case than a backlash against the technology. However, I do know people have a real visceral reaction to this driverless car thing, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it would have happened if someone was actually in the car. Yeah, no, you're right. I probably, you don't hear a whole lot about people throwing fireworks into Ubers, right? Thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, kids, don't get any ideas. Yeah, no, I, I feel like uh, it is. The autonomous self-driving car thing is a little bit of a lightning rod topic for people for reasons I don't entirely understand. I think it's just that visceral, visceral reaction. In terms of a larger backlash against technology, I don't know. I'm not sure I'm seeing it. I'm seeing a lot of hand-wringing about AI and people getting on their high horses with opinions, but I don't... I, has anyone really taken big action? Has anyone written letters to congressmen in, in mass yet about slowing down AI or any of the other digital advances we've seen? People complain about <clears throat> social media platforms using consumers as the product and people don't stop using it though. It just keeps going. It just keeps going. There is some backlash against things like um, self-checkouts and... Mm -hmm. A lot of brands are concerned about theft. In fact, Target has recently uh, made some changes to the the hours with which self-checkout will uh, be available in some of their stores mm -hmm. uh, because they're afraid, even though it creates a better environment and people like it, there are some 
uh, other customers who have never really grown towards that technology. But uh, I don't know that there's a lot of facts uh, against the backlash yet either, but it'll be interesting to watch. Yeah. Um, the driverless segment's interesting. I, I think, yes, it, it's it's fascinating because the percentage of which there'll be car accidents through a driverless car will probably be much less than a human. Much less. But the instances where there will be accidents could be in instances where a human might easily not get in an accident. So look, it's it's in still in its infancy, but um, it'd be interesting to see kind of where that goes and and how people become comfortable with that. So yeah, yeah, I think there's a big difference between backlash and just you know complaining about stuff. But I don't know that anyone really does anything or really stops using these tools that generally make their lives a little more convenient. Yeah. Yeah, good point. All right. Well, with that, should we dive into talking to our guest? Yeah, let's do it. Our esteemed guest. All right, Brian, as you know, I am beyond excited to introduce one of the most influential people working in advertising today. Margaret Johnson is the first ever chief creative officer of one of the world's best ad agencies, Goodby Silverstein and Partners. The agency is known for iconic ad campaigns like Got Milk and the Budweiser Lizards, representing clients including Nike, HP, BMW, eBay, Doritos, Comcast, the NBA, and a whole lot more. And under Margaret's creative leadership, the agency has been recognized with pretty much every advertising award known to humankind. It was also named the most innovative advertising agency by Fast Company in 2021. Margaret herself was named Executive of the Year in 2018 by Ad Age magazine and cited as the ad industry's top chief creative officer by Forbes, Business Insider, and Adweek. Name an advertising award, she's won it. She's also a tireless advocate for underrepresented professionals in advertising and is a founding member of the 3% Conference, which we'll touch on in a little bit with her. This year, she and her team had four ads in the Super Bowl, more than any other agency, with two of them excelling in national consumer polls. Talking Like Walking for BMW and Dina and Mita for Doritos. I could go on and on and on, but that would cut into our time with her. Please welcome Margaret Johnson. Woo. Yeah. All right. Well, an advertising legend thanks. in our presence. <laughs> thanks so much for, for asking me to, to be on the podcast. Uh, all right, Margaret, to get started, just can you orient our guests and tell us a little more about your role at Goodby Silverstein and Partners and, and maybe fill us in on what exactly does a chief creative officer do? So I am chief creative officer here at Goodby Silverstein and Partners, and I basically oversee all the creative work that that leaves the building. So let's get into the fact that you did just produce all those Super Bowl ads uh, more than any other agency. What kind of effort goes into that? Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, the steps that are involved in creating a national ad um, and whether it's really a whole lot different to do one for such a big event? I think it's really different than any other you know, brief that that comes through because there's so much more pressure on it. There's so much, you know, money and celebrity involved that uh, you have a lot more eyes um, on the creative work. You have a lot more clients that are, you know, a part of the process and on set. So yeah, it's there's a lot more pressure there <laughs> for sure. And and what are the steps like? How does it how does a bill become a law? How do you, how do you get from <laughs> kind of that that brief you mentioned to a finished ad that runs the Super Bowl? It's funny, it like it varies from client to client. Uh, we've been doing Super Bowl spots for you know Frito Lay and PepsiCo for a long time, so that process starts 
a lot earlier. Those clients are really savvy and they want to be a part of the process and they're uh, incredibly organized when it comes to, to producing this kind of stuff. For Frito-Lay, we started in the summer. So months and months and months wow. ahead of time. Um, then on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have a client like Kawasaki, who had never been in the Super Bowl before, and we only started a few months ahead. So it, it kind of depends on how seasoned the client is uh, in the Super Bowl arena. Can you talk a little bit about organizing all those different types of people and and pieces of it between you know the brand and the celebrities, your, all the crews you're working with, your creative teams, all these influencing factors that go into the ad? Like, How do you guys kind of keep it all running together? You know, it kind of just, you do it bit by bit. I mean, on the celebrity front, you know, initially you'll pitch an idea to the client. They'll like that idea. You'll have a few celebrities in mind. You approach the first one. And uh, the, honestly, the name of the game is flexibility, because if you don't get that one celebrity, you don't want your idea to, to die because that one person doesn't want to uh, do the ad. So I think you move on to the next one. So it just kind of like unfolds in that way. You just do it bit by bit. Were there any ads this year that had a, a, a big unexpected twist or where that flexibility had to really come into play? Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, our BMW spot's a, a great example. We pitched the idea, the client loved it. We got Usher on board and the whole thing at the time really hinged on, you know, his hit song. Yeah. And as we got into the negotiations with the NFL and got into the specifics around the ad, the NFL said, you can't use that song because Usher's going to be doing the halftime show. So you can't use that song. Uh, so then we had to go back and rethink the the whole ending. So that's a, a, a great example of like flexibility is kind of the name of the game when it comes to Super Bowl. Well, it worked because that that kind of subtle little yeah at the end actually yeah. I think kind of had a little more impact. <laughs> well, it also worked really well with our position in the lineup because uh, the the spot ran just before the halftime show, so it kind of teed that up nicely yeah. when you know then you cut to him singing it. Can you talk about your different teams internally? Like, is there a lot, of, a little bit of like fun competition between your teams to come up with the best spot or how do you guys kind of work together? There's definitely um, a healthy competition around here for, you know, you know, who it's, it's a jump ball usually. So you have a lot of teams initially throwing in ideas and not every team though is, is, is up for it. I will say that. I think we've been doing it long enough that people around the creative department know that it's, you're in for the long haul when you sign up for, for Super Bowl because so much goes into testing and things that are just completely out of your control. So you kind of need to go in eyes wide open, knowing that it's not going to be easy. How are the senior executives involved like yourself? Are you, you try to give people space to be able to do it or do you have to be more involved just because it's such a, such a larger magnitude? How do you get involved? Yeah, I mean, on Super Bowl, very involved because you're dealing with the most senior clients for each brand. And like I said before, there's just so much money at stake and celebrity and there's just a lot on the line. So in the case of Super Bowl, I'm, I'm really involved in that whole process. I always go to those shoots. So Margaret, I've always wondered when you look at the day after analysis 
of you know which Super Bowl spots people like. Um, you know, there's so many that are super funny, super memorable, really dramatic in the moment. But a lot of them, you go two days down the road and people have no idea which brand did what uh, or it didn't change their opinions or purchase behavior. When you're building ads for such an entertainment focused showcase like the Super Bowl, how do you focus your teams on creating something that you think will actually move the needle, will actually work for the client? I think the key there is and we talk about this a lot um, at the agency is to make sure you're, you know, making stuff people care about. That's the only way that your idea is going to break through and that people are going to remember the brand, right? They're going to, you want them to to watch it and, and think to themselves, that brand, they really get me. I want to, I want to interact with that brand. I'm going to buy their stuff. So as a consumer yourself, when you're watching, are there times when you watch something and you just go, oh my gosh, I can't believe they spent all that money and yes. no one's going to know what that was for or <laughs> what I'm supposed to think. Yes. What a waste of money. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and then, you know, in a lot of cases, they're just promoting the category when they don't break through right. and do something that's memorable. Um, they're doing their, their own brand of disservice. You prepared to name any names? No, <laughs> Come on, throw, first <laughs> throw someone under a bus. I'm kidding. Of course not. Those same clients are probably going, maybe we should call Goodby Silverstein to partners to do our ad next year. <laughs> I hope so. We just wasted a lot of money. You know, with that obsession of the cost of the Super Bowl ad, you know, everybody talks about it and everybody kind of follows how much more and more it costs each year. How do you manage that with brands and, um, you know, especially the ones that are on the fence and whether it fits or or people that you maybe say this may not be for you, even if you have the money? Are you dealing with things like that? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. There's so many platforms now that it's really hard to reach all the audiences that you're trying to, to reach out to. And the Super Bowl is advertising's big, you know, biggest stage. And it's the the one day a year where you can reach everyone all at once. Everyone's watching, everyone from, you know, tiny little kids to great grandparents. Um, so it, it, it is a valuable bang for your buck. Any ads in this year's game, Margaret, that you wish that you had worked on you know, I really liked the um, the Paramount Plus ad. I didn't. So, I feel so like did I, Brian. Oh yeah. Well, yes. I feel like it didn't get the 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 attention it deserved. But there were so many other studios that were just pushing their sizzle reels and using their properties in a pretty generic way. And I just thought they did a really nice job of of taking those properties and creating something that was conceptual and, and really, really interesting. And they still had all the things um, that work on Super Bowl. You know, they yeah. had celebrity, you know, Drew Barrymore. Uh, they had like great music with Creed. They had even animated character. Like they had like all the ingredients. They actually did something that was memorable and conceptual. And I admired that. I thought they did a nice job. You know, we had a um, day after quick rundown of the commercial podcast and they released that so early that I wonder if it kind of ran out of steam by the time the game came around because a lot of people had seen it before the game started. What, what are your thoughts on 
the pre-release. I like watching it in the moment. Now I know that spending a lot of money, you might be in a room with a crowd of people and not be able to, you know, hear the commercials. So like it helps the brands to release them early. But what are your what are your thoughts about when to release a commercial? I mean, as a pure creative person, I'm with you 100%. I like being surprised and seeing everything fresh and for the first time during the the game. But if I'm a client and an investment strategy, I think there's a lot to say for releasing it early and making sure that, you know, the celebrities or influencers that you have involved are helping you push out that content ahead of time so that you're getting as many eyeballs on on the creative as possible. It's going to be the most effective (laughs) in that way. And I guess some of the thinking there on the pre-release too is it lets you have a little more runway on whatever digital experiences, you know, companion pieces you're making to go along with the ad. That's exactly right. How big a challenge is that for you? It's not just that you can do an ad and move on. You've got to create a whole experience around the advertising. Is that a stressor for the agency? and, And how do you approach that? Director, but it's definitely a part of the process. You know, you want the ripple effect. You want to have the excitement pregame so people have something that they're looking forward to. You want to have the spot itself. And then after the game, you want the the idea and the experience to, to live on. For Kawasaki this year, we did a promotion or a partnership with Great Clips. And so we gave away 15,000 free mullets after the game. <laughs> and, you know, that just kept the conversation going. <laughs> we didn't want to talk about mullets. <laughs> yeah, do we, do we thank you or curse you for having 15,000 more mullets in the country <laughs> walking around? That, that's, that's a tough call. I think you'd look good with a mullet on. <laughs> I was I was approaching mullethood last fall. <laughs> There's been a lot of conversation in the last several months on you know brands making big, big investments in advertising and marketing and maybe not seeing immediate results. The one that really comes to mind is the conversation around Solo Stove, who had the Black Friday um, advertising with Snoop Dogg. And I, I think immediate sales are a fair question, but it's really not the opportunity that that these type of opportunities present? I mean, like, what are your, what are your thoughts on managing clients' expectations of what they're actually getting out of uh, an ad on a large scale? I think you have one big opportunity to insert yourself into pop culture now. And Super Bowl is that opportunity. It is advertising's biggest stage. And like I said before, everyone is watching all at once, you know, from little kids to great grandparents. So you're you're getting a lot of bang for your buck. And it's a great opportunity to get lots of different kinds of people and lots of different audiences talking about your brand. What was the uh, what was the first Super Bowl ad you ever worked on? I think the first one that I ever did was Fire and Ice for um uh well, it was the first Super Bowl spot to ever have two brands in one commercial. And we did it with Mountain Dew and Doritos. Definitely, uh, definitely a hairy experience. <laughs> Wait, why, why hairy? What happened? Well, originally, and if you remember that commercial, it featured Morgan Freeman and Peter Dinklage, and they were having, it was kind of a, a dueling banjo, kind of they were rapping against each other and a rap off and a uh, rap battle. And uh, we had originally cast uh, Kevin Spacey to play both Ooh. roles. Oh. So he was gonna be in this rap battle with himself representing each brand. And then 
the night before he was to sign the contract, he had his Me Too moment. And uh, we had to <laughs> quickly switch. Oh, like I said before, the name of the game is flexibility when you're working on, on Super Bowl and not, you know, you can't get yourself too tied to any one. Yeah, celebrity. I mean, look, look what happened this year with uh, FanDuel and the Carl Weathers. They died before yes. the. Yeah, that yeah. that could have been that could have been terrible, but they they actually were able to salvage something decent out of that. I mean, not the ad, but the reference to Carl Weathers. Well, the interesting thing that happened on this one was that part of the fun of that ad is seeing someone super unexpected, you know, rapping. And when we found out that, you know, Kevin wasn't going to work out, obviously, the easiest thing for us to do or for the client to do was to, to switch gears. They already had a relationship um, with uh, Kevin Hart and they were like, well, we'll just use Kevin Hart instead. And I remember I was sitting in my car, it was the night before Thanksgiving. And I, I thought I was gonna have a conversation about this whole thing with one client and it ended up being 15 clients and me <laughs> on the phone. And I had oh, to make wow. a cake for, why it would be more interesting to hear Morgan Freeman rap Missy Elliott than to see Kevin Hart rap Missy Elliott. And my whole thing was that, you know, everyone expects Kevin to do something funny, but you yeah. don't expect Morgan Freeman to, to do something that unexpected. So anyway, it was a whole conversation and a long one, but it worked out. Wow. Well, great call. Right, really great call that you were able to advocate in kind of a high pressure situation for something that turned out to be a real winner. Um, you answered my question about any, you know, really big pivotal moments that where you had to make a snap decision because that's what this podcast is all about. But you just answered that. That sounds like <laughs> a pretty in real time decision to go somewhere different. Yeah, I think that one is uh, burned in memory. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of the most... Uh, stressful and you know the first situation like that i've been in so it's a good learning experience <laughs> trial by fire and dice yeah exactly exactly I, I know you can't name favorites but is there a, a super bowl ad campaign you've worked on that really just stands apart as just so memorable for you like really high impact for you no i i, I really you know you love all your children exactly uh, but I, I did love the, the Cool Ranch spot that we did. It was a dance-off between Sam Elliott and Lil Nas X. And that one just had, it was a fun one to shoot, but it also had um, a great, we were you know, talking before about uh, extensions and what you're doing after the game. And it had an awesome extension, a Sway app that we produced that, you know, let the consumer dance like Lil Nas and, um, put tons of really fun content out into the world. So that one stands out. It was a really simple idea, loosely based on the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, but the the fight was over a bag of Cool Ranch Doritos. And it was just, it was just a fun one. Yeah, that's a winner. And and one that, you know, just with all that passage of time, I do remember it being for Cool Ranch Doritos without you having, say, having to say it. So, uh, and you teed up, I think, a really interesting transition. You could be Silver Scene Partners used to be known kind of as a TV first agency. Or maybe that was your competitors who were putting that out there. I don't know, but um, probably. yeah, probably. But you you really navigated that shift from traditional media like TV into digital media, the digital media landscape incredibly well. How did you and the agency make that transition? You know, for me personally, I've always been 
really interested in the tech side of things. I'm married to a former tech journalist. So um, like it or not, I've kind of been on this journey since, you know, <laughs> since the, like 99. So I just am genuinely curious and interested in technology. We have an in-house innovation lab here at the agency. It's called GSP Labs where it's filled with lots of people who like to tinker and make prototypes and help us educate the agency about the latest tech that is coming. We're lucky because we kind of get that first wave of tech just because of our proximity to, to Silicon Valley. So it's just a part of who we are these days and very much a part of um, how the work gets made. You know, creatives will sit and we have these tech talks where they, you know, they're kind of like, education, you know, workshops and a creative might hear about a piece of technology and not immediately think that it's applicable to something that they're working on. And then a brief comes across their desk and they're like, oh yeah, you know, they filed it away and they pull, pull it back out of the drawer and they're like, okay, this is my chance to, to do something really innovative for the brand that, that I'm working on. And lots of ideas are born that way. That's cool. I'm sure the lab's playing around with some augmented reality or Apple Vision Pro stuff right now? <laughs> yeah, we're doing a lot of experimenting with that stuff. I mean, that kind of experimentation has been going on forever. I think 2016 was when we did our first VR experience, and that was for the Dali Museum. It was called Dreams of Dali, but it was kind of our dipping our toe into to VR way back in 2016. So we've been doing it for a long time. So being ahead of the curve like that and having those in-house resources like the labs probably helps attract a more digitally savvy, digitally attuned creative director and writer and art director, right? Yeah. And it helps attract super innovative talent. And it also really helps as a strong assist to those who aren't as tech savvy. They have a whole team of people that they can, can lean on for that. I've noticed over the past year or so, you've been a little bit out front uh, in terms of the advertising community, in terms of talking about navigating the collision of generative AI technology with human creativity. So can you talk a little bit about how your organization, how Goodby Silverstein Partners, which is totally powered by human creativity, how do you handle the speed at which the machines seem to be uh, getting really good at generating creative content? It's funny, I did a whole conversation about this with Brad Lightcap, who is the COO of OpenAI. We did this at, at Cannes last year and it was standing room only. Like you had, you know, mm -hmm. whole, you know, audience of, of creatives asking, asking the same thing. And you have to embrace it and just run straight towards the fire, is my advice. You know, we we work really hard to keep the agency super educated on this front. We have an ongoing relationship with um, Hugging Face uh, and they are one of the lead, lead tech companies on the, on the AI <laughs> circuit. And uh, they come in regularly and do workshops with the agency to make sure that we're up to speed on the, the latest tech. As Midjourney and Dali ha have really caught on, especially in the world of, of art direction, we've just made sure that every art director in the building is 
proficient in Midjourney and Dolly just to make sure that our comps are super tight and we can do things, you know, a lot faster and we can just move at the speed of, of technology and culture. That's a, I don't want to say it's scary because it's so exciting, but you don't know what you don't know. So where do you draw the lines and how do you let people play and still not make mistakes that could be really impactful? Yeah, it's, it's all, it's all true. I mean, you have to approach it with a conscience, <laughs> <laughs> right? Good way to put it. Yeah. Well, I'm comforted too, by your point that you're urging your creative directors to embrace it and kind of run, run to the fire, like you said, because I think a natural reaction would be to kind of like, oh no, let's, let's push away. Let's say that's not a good thing. We shouldn't go down that path. Let's do what we've always done. You can see those creatives who aren't embracing it getting left behind. And you really do have to just reframe your perspective and approach everything with a beginner's mind and just know that, you know, on the tech front, things are, they're changing and they're changing fast. And if you're not embracing, then you're going to be left behind. What other exciting things um, do you see out there about how brands can reach and interact with, with consumers today? The, the most interesting thing to me is that there's a lot less of that one-way conversation, like the fire hose effect. <laughs> and yeah. it's a lot more interactive. So the brand, you know, throws the ball and then the consumer's throwing the ball back. It, it's, it's fun. <laughs> it's a lot more playful and interactive. And that's what you want, right? You want people to love your brand and want to be a part of it. That's what's going to make them talk about it and want to buy your products. So again, like a good guide is just make sure you're making stuff people care about. So then they'll throw the ball back. Margaret, I've heard Rich Silverstein say that clients get the work they deserve. And <laughs> say that? I, yeah, I've heard him say that, yeah. As, as someone who <laughs> You know, personally, I've always been kind of turned off by seeing clients who treat their marketing partners poorly or like a commodity. Um, I've always really liked that sentiment. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what makes a great client partner. You've talked about the Super Bowl ads and how early you start and how you've been very able to kind of navigate uh, tough creative decisions in the moment with them. But what on their side, what are the characteristics of a good client partner? transparency is a big part of it like being really clear with your agency on what's the objective is it to sit in the middle of culture is it to drive sales and if so what's that mark what goal are we trying to achieve because without that information you know creative is just that it's just creative so you kind of need to have that goal in mind when you're from the very beginning, when you're even thinking of, of the ideas. And I, and I think just being really honest, even when it's hard. <laughs> so, you know, I think a lot of times clients will, when in a situation where they're giving feedback, they aren't maybe as brutally honest as, as they should be. It, it ends up being a disservice if you sugarcoat things, especially in the case of something like Super Bowl. Time is of the essence and you're moving quickly and there's a lot of money and you want to make sure that everyone is on the same page. That's how you're going to be successful. Um, what are some of the ways that kind of a support model has changed in, in terms of like your 
creative resources that you put in place to support a brand? You know, is the yeah. makeup of those, that staff, has it changed or do you need different types of resources to support them? Well, for us, our innovation lab is a big part of, of every brief now. So it used to be that the strategy department would present the creatives with a brief and that's the way it would all begin. But now we bring in our innovation lab from the very beginning because we want tech to be uh, a part of every idea that we put out into the world. I, I gather from everything you've been saying about technology and traditional creative skill sets, there are probably some really rewarding campaigns recently that have combined those things. Anything recently that stands out in terms of being super rewarding because it does bridge the human creative components and the, the emotional touch along with a real strong interactive component? Yeah. Uh, well, for me personally, I, and this, we kind of came up with this idea in the agency, but I, I have a nonprofit with my daughter called Daughters of the Evolution. And um, it all kind of started with us doing a panel at Cannes about, they had asked me to do a, a panel about uh, being a woman in advertising. And at the time, my daughter was nine and said, that sounds like a really boring conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the vote of confidence, honey. And I was like, you know what? And, and she's like, you've already done that talk a million times. And I was like, okay, you're right. Well, maybe they'd rather listen to to what you have to say. And so we ended up inviting five CCOs and their daughters, all different ages, up on stage at Cannes to, to hear their perspective on that thing. We came out of that. My daughter and I were like, you know what? We're going to make Daughters of the Evolution. We're going to turn that into uh, a nonprofit. And so we did that. And the first thing that we put out into the world was an AR app. And it was kind of born out of my daughter who came home one day and was like, why is it that there are no women in this history book that I'm studying? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I went to the innovation lab and I was like, this, this has to be like easy for us to, to solve. We're never going to change the actual textbook, right? right? right. But it, it was, if we could create just like a simple AR app. So if you hovered over the picture of Abraham Lincoln or George Washington or all the faces that you're used to seeing in these history books and you were uh, served up an image and a story of a woman that you probably never heard of but did something equally cool around that same time, that has to be possible. And they were like, that's 100% possible because there weren't that many photographs taken back then. So we can create uh, an app that will register all those photos. We'll just feed those photos into the app. And every book has the same photos because there just weren't that many <laughs> being taken. <laughs> and, what a cool uh, idea. And yeah. so that's how we came up with Lessons in Her Story. And, you know, we launched it at South by Southwest uh, immediately, like, Davos picked it up and it kind of spread like wildfire. The Smithsonian was interested. And that one is for me personally, one that, that I'm really proud of. That's incredible. It really is. That's, that's a fantastic. Sorry. Uh, that was kind of a long story. A long answer. A, no, it, it's a, it's a great story. And I love that it originated with an observation from your daughter. That's really neat. Yeah. yeah. So speaking of that, can we talk a little about the 3% movement? I know that that's an initiative that is committed to addressing the fact that women and people of color are incredibly underrepresented in senior creative roles. Can you talk about some of the progress that movement's made and, and how close it's getting to what remains a, a tremendous well, gap? Well, it's amazing to me that like 
80% of all purchase decisions are made by, by women. And there are so few women that are at the top on the creative side. And that's, we have made progress. When I got involved in 3%, that's, that's actually what that stat represented. There were only 3% of the creative directors in the industry were, were women at the time. And I think we're up to 12% or something. So we are, we are making progress, but we're, there's still, still work to be done. But I really admire Kat Gordon. She is the one who really spearheaded that whole effort in the beginning and invited me to be a part of it at the very, very beginning. I was a part of the very first conference and she's just made a tremendous impact on the industry. That's cool. Yeah. I, I saw on the website that is there something like only like four categories where men are actually the primary decision maker, but everything else it's, it's, you know, it's equal or majority female decided, yeah. right? Yeah. That's amazing. So con contrast that with still how far away it is from 50-50 split in terms of chief creative officers. It's amazing. Yeah, I'm really proud of, you know, at our agency. When I became uh, a partner, I was one, the only woman, but uh, one of, I think it was six at the time. And uh, now we're 50-50, we're so I'm proud of that. Can you tell us a little bit about your own career journey trajectory um, at Goodby and, you know, how you've moved along the way and some of the important people that have kind of helped you get to where you are today? Yeah, I mean, I started at the bottom. <laughs> the very bottom. Uh, well, actually, this is kind of an interesting story. When I was at the Portfolio Center, I went to an ad school after I got out of UNC Chapel Hill. And um, I used to follow this art director. His name was uh, Jeremy Foster. And I always loved his work because it didn't feel like advertising. It felt very editorial and artistic. And I was, I just always wanted to, to do that. <laughs> I wanted to make my stuff look like that. And um, so let's say I loosely have in my portfolio after his and uh, guess what? I sent him my portfolio and he liked it and he hired me <laughs> for my first job. Uh, he worked at Leonard Bonnie Lee Barth and Kelly in Providence, Rhode Island. And he had grown up at Goodby Silver Scene and Partners. And he was now working at this little shop that was run by David Lubars in Providence. And pretty much as soon as I got there, he moved back to San Francisco and took his old job back at uh, Goodby Silverstein. And uh, so I ended up leaving Providence. I went to Dallas. I worked for a guy named Grant Richards, who then like almost as soon as I got there left and came to, to GSP. And then these two guys brought me here. So that's how I actually landed at GSP. And then, like I said, I just kind of worked my way up from the bottom. I started out as a junior art director and then just over time kind of worked my way up. So that's a pretty rare situation where you've got someone who's a chief creative officer whose tenure is not exclusively, but largely at the same agency. I know agency folks tend to hop around a lot. Um, so I think that must be a testament to kind of the relationships you've built there. Well, I had, also, great, I had two great teachers. <laughs> yeah. So that was, that was the other part of the thing that Brian's question. The one I'm curious about too, is like, you know, who, who's kind of lifted you up? I know you like to lift others while you're rising. Who's lifted you up? You know, Rich and Jeff are incredible teachers, mentors. They've just always been, they advocate for great ideas. 
They aren't too hands-on, but help you when you need it. And I don't know, I'm just really fortunate that I had both of them kind of watching after me along the way. What advice do you have for young creatives kind of getting into the business and into the industry overall? Stay hungry. I was telling the story to a, a group, but we have a school here called the Academy, an in-house advertising school. And I was telling the incoming class that they were like, well, what do you mean stay hungry? And I was like, okay, here's an example. <laughs> when I was at UNC Chapel Hill, uh, I was in the advertising sequence, but the program was really uh, geared towards newspaper writing. And I took a class at Parsons School Design in New York during summer school and then realized that, okay, I'm supposed to be on um, the other side, not the writing side, but I, I want to be on the art side and I need to put a portfolio together. And they just didn't offer that at Carolina. And so the day I was leaving New York, and this will date me, but I like tore out the yellow pages out of a phone book <laughs> that was like, on out on the street in front of my apartment. And I took it back with me to Chapel Hill. And I was like, okay, I have to figure out how to put this portfolio together. I'm just going to call all these agencies and ask someone. And so I started cold calling all these advertising agencies in New York. Now, I mean, think if you think about it, like J. Walter Thompson and DVDO New York at the time were giant, giant agencies. And here I am in my dorm room in Chapel Hill calling. I'm like, hey, may I speak to someone in the creative department? And they're like, anyone? I'm like, yeah, anyone. <laughs> and they're like, okay. <laughs> Put me through some poor soul answers the phone and I'm like, hey, I'm a student at the University of North Carolina. And I'm just curious, like, where do you put those portfolios together that people have <laughs> that want to get into advertising? And nine out of 10 creatives said there's a school in Atlanta that helps people put portfolios together. It's called the Portfolio Center. So then I had my answer, but that I probably called 40 agencies. The kind of like hunger <laughs> that I like to see in people, you know, when I'm interviewing them, because I know those people really care and they really want it. Does anyone still do that? Do you have you ever gotten a call like that, or is it all just LinkedIn and? <laughs> no, I think I'm still one crazy, one crazy enough to do that. You know, you definitely had to work a lot harder back then in terms of finding people. You know, picking up the phone and having to call people, and yeah. much less back then having to print and mail all your resumes around too. Any <laughs> portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> but but you, but you could stand out with a phone call a little bit easier than you probably can today with a LinkedIn connection request. It's true. Maybe. A little more personal. Yeah, it's true. All right, so let's bring back Yellow Pages, phone booths, and uh, <laughs> hunger. I think that's what we've learned today. <laughs> Stay hungry. That's right. Margaret, we have we had a lot of questions we wanted to ask you, and I, I think we covered almost all of them, and, and you've been so good. Uh, at, at answering them and, and just interesting stories and fantastic perspectives. So thank you so much. It's been great. Thanks so much for, for asking me to, to be on the podcast. Uh, beyond thrilled to have you. And I feel like maybe with your uh, celebrity connections, maybe you could help us with one of our hopelessly unattainable guests. We end each episode with a open letter to a hopelessly unattainable guest. And we are 0 for 10 so far. And uh, we'll, we'll send you the list. <laughs> okay, great. Send it over. <laughs> I'll do what I can. Open some doors for us. All right. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks, you guys. That was fun. Thanks, Margaret. All right. That was fantastic, John. That was a she's, yeah, she's, she's great. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's just wonderful. Great perspective. Um, really awesome to talk to somebody who's in that seat and making real decisions that we see every day. Yeah. Talk about making decisions at the top of an industry. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. All right. Speaking top of uh, industries, you got any uh, top talent you're trying to bring in to, to be a guest in the future? Yeah. 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 I think I got a good target for us. You know, uh, Let's hear it. it might be, might be a tough catch, but let's see what we can do. I am targeting uh, Mr. Tiger Woods. Woo-hoo. Yeah. So uh, let me read my plea here. <laughs> Please do, because so far they've been real effective. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. This is okay. the one that gets, this is the one that lands the big the one. Go ahead. The, the one. one. All right. Dear Tiger Woods, I can't believe I'm writing you to join my podcast. It's a dream come true. Back in the day, as a kid graduating from college, as you were beginning to demolish the PGA Tour, I attempted to sell a humor piece speaking to other golfers to conspire to take you down, a la Julius Caesar. You Wait, were too for the game. No one else could get any attention. It was all Tiger all the time. Everyone else was irrelevant. No one ever published my article, and for good reason. Your existence in golf brought all players and the game to a level I had never seen. More money, more sponsors, more TV, larger events. Everyone benefited in your excellence. Before you, it was nice to be a competitive most weeks on tour. With you, you expected to win every single time. You're a super legend that we definitely won't see again. We're both at inflection points in our lives, Tiger. You're less than two years away from the senior circuit, the Champions Tour. How crazy is that? I know, I hate talking about age two. You recently parted ways with Nike after an incredible 27-year run and just launched a questionable new brand with TaylorMade called Sunday Red, featuring a weird-looking tiger print animal. But good for you. We all need to take risks. Let's talk about it together on this podcast, Snap Decisions. This time, you won't have to look for any knives in the back. Sincerely, Brian and John. There's a lot going on there. I'm not sure what my name on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, was it positive? Yeah, I heard you make fun of his new brand. Uh, I heard that you wrote a humor piece trying to take him down. That, I did. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. I. How could he say no? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Print it. Ship it. <laughs> Why don't you put, yeah, put your put your return address on that one? Would you? <laughs> All right, we'll let you know how that makes out. Yeah, yeah, well, well, yeah, our, our audience will know when they see a future podcast featuring Tiger Woods. Okay. All right, until next time. Have a good day. See you later. Let's shut it down. <laughs>